ESU in Stanford, 90.1 FM. I'm Mark Molino. This is the Henry George Program. This is a show all about land use, housing, and various economic crises and more. Today in the program, we are in exile. No access to the actual physical KSSU station, so we're having teleconferencing, and we're talking with uh, people off in East Bay. We have from East Bay for Everyone, both Daryl Owens and Derek Sagehorn, and freelance writer Diego Edgar. And we're talking about... What is going to happen in the aftermath of, of coronavirus? What is happening right now? How are renters being taken care of? How are city governments? We're talking about a lot of things. So just stay tuned. Let's get into it. So we have on here today, this is the East Bay Brain Trust. Welcome back, Daryl. Thank you. Uh, and welcome again, Derek. Thanks for having me. And welcome once more, Diego. Good to be back. Yeah, so, okay, we're recording this. This is uh, April 12th. It Less than a month ago is when uh, the six-county Bay Area, one of the first people to respond uh, in telling people to shelter in place. Uh, this was a quick uh, reaction to make sure that the virus was not spreading in the area. It has a lot of knock-on effects to, uh, to uh, housing, uh, especially as far as it relates to renters. Uh, so I guess let's talk about just kind of what the response is as far as renters uh, go. We uh, we certainly didn't get any action from the state level at the governor for for several days and a very weak reaction on that. Uh, does anyone here want to talk about uh, how how uh, this first uh, you know got got action from uh, upper levels? Yeah. So um, John, uh, Emeryville City Council Member John Bowders actually did a good write up of this on the California EMB blog. Um, basically explaining um, the difference between Governor Newsom's multiple executive orders um, and what some, you know, more progressive cities have done. Um, my understanding is, so first off, he did an executive order where he was like, okay, um, if cities want to ban evictions, you know, go for it. Um, and um, the problem is like, you know, cities in, in say, Riverside um, weren't really feeling it. Um, I mean, at best. There's so many cities. It's an right, right, right. Um, so, you know, after pressure, he came up with another executive order um, that is, um, to my understanding, stronger than other executive orders in places like um, um, Texas or Nebraska or Oregon that did similar things. But um, essentially, uh, landlords can still file a complaint for an unlawful detainer, but they can't, like, courts are closed. So they can't proceed through the courts. Um, and... Um, Tenants have essentially, um, as of now, unlimited time to um, respond to the complaint. But um, after sort of the um, state of emergency is over, they will have a, a set window of time where they can um, respond to the complaint. And then places like LA um, basically gave tenants like 12 months to pay back, back rents before um, you know, landlords could move forward with it. Um, and um, Emeryville actually just made, said you can't file. Um, so, yeah, um, Derek, the actual lawyer, has more detail. Yeah, um, from what I understand, the, the Gavin, Digo's right, the first uh, executive order from Gavin Newsom was very weak. It was essentially a, a t telling cities that here's, uh, we're going to defer to local control and here are the steps if you want to enact a, an eviction moratorium or something like that. Here are the, the steps that you could do. And it, didn't, it was kind of prescriptive, but it didn't offer relief to uh, renters in smaller cities that don't necessarily have the political constituency or organization during this pandemic where everybody's either working, they're an essential worker, so they don't have the time to go and organize for this, or they can't organize in meet space and they have to do it over zoom calls. So the, his initial executive order didn't offer any relief to these um, tenants. And um, the second order essentially said like, you can't file a, uh, they're not going to uh, enter a uh, notice of entry default for uh, evictions for unlawful detainers. But that means that landlords could still file these unlawful evictions. <laughs> One second. <laughs> All right. The Chief Justice of the California Supreme Court uh, took some of the leeway that was offered. It was kind of an ambiguous leeway offered in New and essentially said that 
they're going to put a hold on all eviction actions for, for the as long as the shelter in place is going on. So Newsom's order was pretty weak relative. It just said we're not going to allow you to actually go forward with an eviction because necessarily a landlord could file an unlawful detainer action and then a, a tenant who wouldn't necessarily have access to a lawyer, wouldn't know, wouldn't contest it, and then they would get a def default uh, eviction. And then the landlord could just hold on until the end of the shelter in place and then just file the notice of entry and then get this person evicted. The, so, so the Chief Justice Supreme Court said, no, we're just not going to take any eviction filings. They're, they're essentially using their discretion to prioritize. Like they're prioritizing criminal hearings right now. They're prioritizing um, to make sure it's like domestic violence uh, restraining orders. They, those are taking precedence. They're deprioritizing eviction action. So that is, is this is one of the things where, you know, uh, the unelected judiciary, I mean, if you care about democracy, you got to be wary of um, this idea of these jurists um, kind of determining all of your, your rights and stuff like that. But at the same time, they've stepped in where Gavin Newsom and, and unfortunately, the legislature also has, has been uh, adjourned uh, for the past month or so. So they, the, the Supreme Court uh, Chief Justice stepped up and, and essentially said, we're just going to not prioritize them as a... So, so a question I have, I don't get this straight, is the, the first, the, I think it was like, there was like 10 days or something between the weak order and the strong order. The first time when Gavin Newsom says, I am you know, allowing or I, I'm encouraging cities to, uh, to do eviction moratoriums, did that actually change anything or is that like basically the status quo? From my understanding, you know, any city that was going to do an eviction moratorium um, was was going to do it, right? It's, it's almost a, in the same way that uh, cities can pass rent control. The cities that already have the political will to do it have done it. So all you're doing by giving this prescriptive, he essentially gave you a FAQ of like how if you wanted to do an eviction moratoria uh, in your city or county or whatever it was, this is what you do. But, you know, th these these boards of supervisors, these city councils, they have lawyers that could have done this work and figured it out themselves. So it, it simply was the appearance of action. Yeah. So uh, I guess to go back to like the general problem here, the core problem is many workers are now unable to work. When you're not able to work, you can't pay bills. And a lot of people are going to be facing a, a massive problem with not being able to pay their uh, rent bills and face uh, possible eviction. Uh, and, you know, Gavin Newsom's overall thing is to kind of say there's a two-month window in which you can't be evicted afterwards. Uh, who knows what's going to happen? Uh, can you talk more about, uh, uh, Diego, about the Emeryville detail? Uh, no, so the, LA, the, sorry, the Emeryville thing has, uh, um, isn't about back rents. It's about uh, the landlords can't file. Okay. Um, so you can't do the initial filing of unlawful detainer, which is not what the governor's executive order prohibits. Um, um, Councilmember Bowders has been advocating for um, the state essentially to replicate policies like his. Um, as a former tenant attorney from um, Chicago, you know, he used to represent basically um, Cabrini Green tenants. Um, would um, uh, he, I think his judgment should be um, trusted on it. Um, I just want to say, too, as you know, since we're on the Henry George program, um, the fact that so many people essentially can't work in order to quarantine society kind of, you know, validates Henry George's theorem of how kept the value of capital is all derived from labor and, you know, all sort of landlords equity is all contingent upon the cash flows from from people being able to to work and produce and consume and you know, people, people can't go to clubs or, or buy stuff at restaurants or, you know, buy trinkets at stores like the, 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 um, then landlords essentially are not entitled to anything, but it's telling that our, our system is, is essentially saying people can't work, but by and large, they still have to pay rent. Yeah. Right. I mean, the, the, over, yeah, the overall problem, you're like, if you imagine kind of some idealized economy, people work and then, you know, value flows around. Uh, but right, like there is also, you know, purely financialized rents that go here too. And this can be, you know, both the fact that asset holders such as uh, landlords are able to, uh, you know, their, their tenants are more or less indebted to them in real terms. We also have 
you know, payments on debts. This can be everything from other loans to mortgages to other financial assets. And like, like people in the uh, economics world are basically like, what we really need right now is to freeze the economy, you know, really don't allow margin calls. Don't like, don't enforce uh, all sorts of different uh, debt payments. Just basically put everything on hold. But if you really did that, that means uh, renters should not be paying rent until this thing is over. And right. Right. And there's really, you know, because this is so unprecedented, we don't really have, well, some countries more than others, especially, you know, the United States has been caught flat footed because it's a bad country that isn't run very well. Um, but, you know, we don't have policy mechanisms for freezing the economy. It's, it's essentially designed to always be on, um, yeah. always, you know, running at top speed. It's like um, a shark. If a shark ever stops, you know, swimming, it'll die. Right, right, right. But we don't, you know, we can't, essentially the, the, the policy question is like, if we press pause, who's holding the bag and should holding the bag matter, right? Like if landlords don't pay their mortgages, then do the banks go belly up or should the banks also be able to pause? Yeah. Um, and it seems like, you know, the, the government has kind of is, I mean, insofar as we have smart people in the government that they have kind of converged on the idea of like, well, keep people at home and just, provide some semblance of, of preserving cash flows um, while the economy is paused. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not smart enough to say whether that's, that's the right approach, but certainly if we don't, if we're not able to um, pause an economy without cash flows, then sure, I suppose um, deficit spending to preserve cash flows could reduce harm. Why not? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's 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 very it'd be massive change to say like in this freeze people get UBI, you know. But actually, it's one of the more commonsensical things to to happen here. But I think as far as like responses, a lot of a lot of the responses are kind of what do people prioritize? And I think like a month ago, watching uh, Biden and Sanders on stage, they said mortgages. You know, people shouldn't pay mortgage payments uh, like fifty times. I don't think rent once. Uh, Gavin Newsom talking about mortgages, uh, and I think in California it's pretty inexcusable based upon the fact that you know we have a much uh, stranger renters market than most places. But I think everywhere in the country you have a huge renting underclass that is really really squeezed here, and I think it's important that their special problem here is 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 elevated. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, the whole like UBI talk and the whole like stimulus for consumers. I mean, I just don't think it's going to happen. Um, I'd like to see it happen, but that's just not the like monetary policy. I, th- this goes beyond the Trump administration. I mean, we saw this back in 2008 as well um, it, with a Republican in office. They're going to like, I, I mean, arguably, even Obama's stimulus package was, you know, not as big as it could have been. Um, but it's just very obvious that the primary tactic right now is just to pump tons of liquidity to companies and hope that they don't go belly up. They're just going to get bailed out again. And that's really yeah. all there is to it. Um, well, it's, it's and I mean, I, I'm not even, and I'm not even saying it's necessarily a bad thing to do. Um, I know we all saw that CNBC segment where the guy who, um, I forget what he works for, but he's like supposedly like an equitable, like VC or something. Um, is basically like, yeah, we should let the uh, major companies just go belly up and just bail out the workers. And, um, you know, who cares about the um, shareholders and whatnot? And that's true, yeah, but <laughs> it's, it's not going to happen right now. Hopefully a Biden administration will do that, but I don't know what his, um, I don't know what a Federal Reserve looks like under Biden. Well, I think you look at Obama in 2008, you know, 2008 was very, it was very different in that the failure was not some outside force. It was in fact, you know, just kind of a weird bubble, but instead the banks were still endangered and everyone went to a massive bailout. Uh, But at the time, like, for example, they were talking about, should we do things like buy municipal bonds? Uh, and they were scared to do it. They said, no, this is not what the Fed does. You know, this would be a bad precedent. This would be, be way too much of an intervention. Uh, and I think now you're saying if the Fed is actually willing to change that and they're willing to buy uh, bonds. So Yeah, I mean, there is precedent. The Fed did buy municipal bonds after the Great Depression. And, and you know, now we have Chairman Jay Powell, who is by all appearances, you know, as as close to a descendant of the New Deal Fed tradition as we can get. Um, and they are going to be injecting liquidity into the bond market by 
um, you know, buying up municipal bonds. And um, my understanding is that even though it, this is this um, open market um, uh, mechanism is, is limited to municipal bonds of cities of a million or more. Uh, a million or more or counties with two million. Yeah. So um, what I, uh, my, I, I asked. Well, the Bay Area is screwed. No, so I asked um, Dr. Yakov Fagan of the Berggruen Institute in LA, who wrote um, one of the proposals to do this, and he said um, essentially the the state legislature is going to have to get together and sort of securitize some of these bonds for the Fed to buy. Mm. Um, so I mean, LA County obviously you know clears the mark, but for for Alameda County, for San Francisco. Um, you know, Santa Clara is just, just under, I think. Together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So for the Bay Area, these bonds are going to have to be packaged together by the state legislature before they're sold to the Fed. Um, Except for San Jose. Is that? Uh, it's a, oh, San Jose proper. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, more than a million, yeah. Um, I think, right? I'm not sure about that, actually. Yes, think- yeah. San Jose is over a million. Yeah. Okay, okay. Well, I, I'll, I'll check in stats. Uh, I mean, you live in the peninsula. No, no, you're exactly right. It's one. It's almost exactly a million. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, yeah. I will never doubt Daryl again. But uh, no, I mean, it's it's the question. The question is, everybody now. It's like unlike okay, 2008. It's like oh, the banks are going belly up. Does this matter? Like yeah, this matters. Oh yeah, the car companies matter. But now you know the banks are imperiled. The airplane companies are imperiled. Every small business is imperiled. Every renter is imperiled. And the question is, who takes on the risk? And I think uh, Daryl was referencing that video saying the guy said, oh, yeah, let the airplane companies burn. It's fine. And you could say that isn't the smartest thing insofar as you want to retain the infrastructure. You don't want to actually lose real value. But there are things you could let burn more easily that actually wouldn't reduce any value. Uh, and that in my mind would be something like, you know, uh, equity in, in already existing real estate. Uh, if, if, if you actually take away the equity from landlords, I certainly wouldn't complain. Uh, and we'll see, I guess, in tax foreclosure time, if that's going to be something we're willing to, to, to trust. Uh, Derek? Yeah, I mean, you're talking about who takes, I think the, the question we're getting at is who takes the haircut, right? Like, yeah. We're, we're, there's a big, essentially, there's a self-inflicted economic recession, potentially depression that we're talking about. And in that situation, everybody's going to, there's going to be pain all around. And what we're talking about right now is just the distribution of the pain. Yeah. Um, and historically the pain falls on the people who have the least power who have the least amount of assets or zero assets and that's usually people who work for a wage for a living they don't own any they don't own any assets and they don't have a lot of high like social uh, uh intellectual capital to kind of work the system when there is relief provided like they're doing these like backdated uh stimulus checks based on your 2018 tax return all these kind of things yeah. The people who don't don't have those access to the assets, the social capital, or the 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 knowledge to access the benefits, the whatever meager benefits we get, they're going to get hurt the most. So if we cut, approach it from how do we redistribute some of the pain of this, um, you know, land landowners, landlords, they they have benefited from the upswing, at least in California, close to California, of ten years of of appreciation of increasing rents. And they, they always say like, oh, we've got to uh, increase the rent as much as possible because we've got to, you know, there's a, it's a risky business, or if you will, right? So we need to um, capitalize at, at any point, right? We need, to, we need yeah. to raise the rent. We need to, um, you know, uh, deconvert this unit, whatever it is. They're, 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 in the upswing, they're always telling us that they need to get as much as possible. In the downswing, um, I mean, for example, one of my friends, uh, in Los Angeles, recently lost his job. His uh, his his uh, roommate. There's three people living in one unit. His roommate lost his job, and there's one person with a job uh, in uh, three with three people sharing a unit. Right? They they went to their landlord, and the landlord said, "Okay, well, um, in light of your situation, I'm going to allow you to repay your rent uh, over the course of three months for May." And I like he thought he was being magnanimous with this proposal. Um, I I was, you know, I I, I let my friend know it's like, you know, you have now 12 months, so don't like I think it's six, it was six at the time, and now it might be extended to 12. But 
you have the leverage because this guy, I mean, if he really wants to play hardball with you as tenants, he's going to have to, you know, the courts are all, regardless of what's like the eviction um, moratoria that we're, we're getting effectively through the state Supreme Court, it's going to take months for even when the, the eviction moratorium ends through the courts, it's going to take months for these claims to go through, right? So if this guy does want to evict you for non-payment or rent or whatever like that, it's going to take him eight, nine, ten months. It's going to cost a lot of money in legal fees and all this kind of stuff. And is there any guarantee that he's going to be able to, one, fill his unit quickly and, two, get the same rent that he was getting before? He, there, I think there's a sense of entitlement along, among landlords, a certain class of landlords, that says that we, we've appreciated, we've gotten all these up, uh, upside benefits during the economic uh, expansion. And then whatever the rent was in Los Angeles in February of 2020 should be the rent going forward for the next foreseeable future. And, you know, the, the rent comes from people's wealth, uh, from their income, right? And, and no one's got income. So you're going to yeah. have to take a haircut. And so I think that's what we're talking about. We're distributing the pain is, yeah, you're do we're making minor adjustments around that redistribution of the pain through these moratoria on evictions and whatnot. But I think we need to be more real about how long this is going to be, how bad it's going to be, and it's going to require more redistribution of pain in terms of, yeah. of economic loss towards, in my opinion, landowners. Yeah, I mean, I think. It's- well, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. Okay, go ahead. So, so. We're kind of overlooking something, a lesson that we, and I know this is a fundamentally different recession than 08, right? That was brought about through a subprime mortgage crisis in 06. But the point is, is that if a lot of landlords actually genuinely rely income-wise on properties from their rental income, there is, and and, and, um, Derek was talking about how, you know, landlords during the boom times are like, well, I need to raise all this and, you know, all this capital they've acquired, um, which is on paper, they're wealthy, right? Um, It's not liquid yet. But here's the problem. If a lot of landlords start getting put into financial situations where they're encouraged to start selling their properties, um, that sounds like an issue where I could see another repeat of sort of the predatory um, purchasing of properties that we saw with private equity in 08 and 09. And this seems to be that's I mean, this seems to be something that like I don't hear too much about, but everyone likes to pretend like, you know, all landlords are big major private equities that can just take losses. Some of them are, yeah, Uh, for sure. uh, I always thought um, you know, a recession would actually prevent gentrification and private equity. Ah, um, uh, okay, 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 this, okay, okay. The, the hot well, market but, is going to end. But but no, but seriously, like this is completely like under like like no one's talking about this. If you're getting landlords who are not making any rental income, and suddenly private equities and LLCs and everything start coming up and saying, "Hey, well, you know, we'll take this property off your hands for this one-time cash payout." There was no real incentive to do that during the boom times because everyone's like, "Well, how much higher can I go?" But when people are now desperate and you have these rental properties and you're a small or medium-sized landlord, some people might be willing to sell their properties and and and. I don't know. Can the government competitively encourage people to sell to them? I mean, oh. in this income, in this incoming fiscal crisis where we didn't spend, I know we talked about the counter silicon fund all the time, but like in this incoming fiscal crisis where a lot of governments are going to have these huge budgetary shortfalls, um, they probably won't be in the interest of, uh, or they probably will be interested in purchasing properties. And that's going to be a, yet again, another huge <laughs> miss out when, when we start seeing values dropping and LLCs come in, it's going to be a huge just mess up again. No, I think, I mean, to talk about, like, you can read this in a lot of places. I think one of the more dramatic places, you can read the history of uh, kind of boom and bust cycles in, like, Hong Kong. And every time there's a there's a, a, a bust, the smaller developers all go broke, and then the major developers, the big fish, eat them up. So in the end, you get the kind of, you know, this kind of uh, centralization of who owns all of the rental properties in Hong Kong, and that's not great. And Daryl talked about like Blackstone and stuff, buying up major residences across the USA. Awful. Uh, and what's, what's the answer here? I think we're, we're you know, nailing on it. If, if governments at the local level or you know, even higher levels have the resources to suddenly snatch these up out of mortgage you know, foreclosure, out of uh, you know, tax foreclosure, instead of Blackstone, it would be in everyone's best interests uh, but will they? I think a big problem is, yeah, if if uh, there isn't enough money flowing down uh, for them to just basically have the counter sequel fund they need, uh, they won't be able to do that. It's too late. 
only only um San Francisco only um the state government can do it at this point. Yeah, I mean part, um, of, what part of what we're hitting on, I think, is that you know only it, historically, at least in the past recession, only the federal government has really done Keynesian countercyclical spending, but it didn't do it in such a way that state and local governments were also empowered to do it yeah um i mean this you know the state of california went broke in the last recession uh, you know stockton and vallejo went bankrupt and the federal government was like yay let's do a stimulus but it didn't take into account that like there are governments below it that um were not able to do the same thing yeah and this is this is the time that you should have the resources to do it because the land is never cheaper than in a bus town like this. But yeah, it's unfortunately coincides with them being broke. Uh, to go back to a previous point, just the fact we're talking about, you said like, you know, landlords depend upon this for their income. It's very weird of all, you know, are landlords investors? Uh, I would say you have to say the answer is explicitly yes, they are investors. Uh, but unlike other investor classes, uh, when people bought, you know, uh, you know, stock in Delta or something, and it, it dipped in this whole thing, they don't say like, "Oh, my income is 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 lost." You know, that, that isn't really a compelling argument. But for some reason, like landlords really do seem to indicate that it is when you invest in real estate, uh, you should be guaranteed a steady income stream, no matter what going ahead, which is a bit bit goofy. Uh, well, well, I look. I mean, it's not that they're saying that they're guaranteed a steady income stream, like, inherently. They're saying if they don't, um, they're going to cut their assets, which in this case, the assets are people's housing. I mean, that's, that's the difference between the two. But, I mean, they're not going to actually tear down the building. And well, sure, but they'll, they'll sell. But, yeah, but if a small landlord gets foreclosed on, the bank doesn't let the tenants stay. <laughs> At least that, yeah. I, I've not heard of such a thing being the case. Yeah, I mean, that, that would be interesting. We have like TOPA as far as, you know, first, you know, right to buy and stuff like this. But could you, is, how does that, does that even play in at all if it is in fact, uh, you know, in, in, in mortgage foreclosure? I mean, let's, you know, we're dancing around the issue. Let's just get right to it, right? The Calvin Welch politics of the Bay Area, right? The, the alliance between sort of progressive lefty tenant advocates to the extent that they are genuine and um, uh, anti-growth um, asset wealth um, white homeowners um, has always been dependent upon, okay, you know, you get your protections for your um, incumbent um, uh, housing insecure tenants um, as long as you give us political cover for stopping growth. Um, and obviously that has been a zero sum game since the beginning, but you know, now we see obviously stopping growth has not um, stopped the housing crisis. Um, but you know, the, the gambit has always been like, um, okay, well, uh, if we stop growth, then, um, you know, the, 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 the only the right people get asset wealth. I've never really sort of understood the, <laughs> the logic there. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, you know, stopping growth has not worked for the Bay Area. And now, you know, as a region, we're reaping what we sow. But property owners who have, you know, Prop 13 protections and who have property taxes pegged below inflation at 1970s rates are not the ones getting the haircut. But obviously, in my opinion, the ones who should as a class be left holding the bag. It's a good argument to make for that. I mean, because the actual, you know, uh, funding base for our infrastructure has been, uh, you know, cut off at the, the, the root, as it were, we have had to pursue growth in other forms to keep everything afloat. So when your hot markets suddenly crash uh, and all you have are people who are, you know, your homeowners and so on, who aren't even paying their share in property taxes, it's a disaster. And it is going to, like, San Jose, like, barely survived 2008 and it's going like no matter what it's going to be in pain uh very very soon uh but uh, yeah derek uh, do you have any any comment on that topa question in particular i don't know if that's even relevant yeah i mean the at least in san francisco the tenant opportunity to purchase or i think it might be in san francisco it might be the community opportunity to purchase act um it's been around for a year now um, it has been challenged, if I recall correctly, by the Pacific Legal Foundation, the kind of um, 
right wing. Um, I'm not sure if they're Koch brothers funded, but mm. um, right wing conservative uh, legal arm. Um, it is and, indirectly, yes, Koch funded. And uh, so it's been challenged. I don't know in terms of the specifics of whether it's been in place. Um, but it certainly would be useful if they could resolve uh, if if they could resolve that that issue. So we it's a protection at least, and it gives the thing is it gives uh, at least the the kind of model version of Topa gives tenants between thirty and sixty days to uh, put together this offer. And I think one of the things to remember about Topa is not necessarily are you always going to get your offer accepted by the landlord, but it does give uh, tenants political uh, that time that it offers gives tenants uh, a breathing room and, and a, an opportunity to organize and exercise political power as well. So it's not just simply maybe they could shame the landlord into not selling or selling down price, but that time is what is so important. So just like with the eviction moratorium that we're doing is, you know, the, the landlords might get, eventually get their eviction, but it's going to be six, seven, eight months down the line same thing with Topa is they might be able to sell it to somebody else, but it might be three, four months later. So it's all about creating that, that we're slowing the, 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 the transactions of capital um, down a little bit to allow vulnerable tenants to be able to pause and be like, okay, can we try to hold this off? Yeah. Um, and so it, clearly Topa is not going to be just like we talked about. We, we don't have the money and we, we, uh, Diego and, and Daryl wrote that really great piece in the beacon about the counter cyclical fund. And I mean, it seems like it, it, it that was out for a year and a half and I, the assembly, it, we, I think you guys talked to some people in the assembly and nothing came out of it. You know, they didn't budget for it. So the same thing comes back to Topa is because the, the money wasn't set aside. All we're going to do is get that pause and without significant um, investment from the state of the feds, all it is is going to be a pause. Yeah. Um, I mean, the other thing I want to note is that Diego is talking about uh, this kind of the, the nimbyism um, that has stopped growth. And I'm what I'm afraid of is that we're going to um, we're going to have this recession depression. But we're, when we as we go through it and as we hopefully recover from it, we're not going to have I, I have a feeling we're not going to have much of a relief in the way that 2007 to 2009 in the Bay Area had in terms of rents going down because we spent so little, we, we didn't build enough housing, enough affordable housing, enough market rate housing. Um, we didn't build enough housing in the last 10 years. I, my sense is that like the recovery is going to essentially the rent is going to dip a little bit, but incomes are going to dip way more. But yeah. Derek, Derek eyes on the prize. We prevented some developers from making a profit. So Ultimately, do we not win out? <laughs> I mean, so we're not even getting that like temper, that speed bump of a rent dip that, that, that you would associate with a recession. And we're and the problem is, is it's going to we're going to be this is no one's going to start building a new anybody who is prepared to pull a building permit on a new apartment three months ago. There's no way they're doing it, and that project yeah, yeah. is not going to happen. So, so, so Goldman Sachs has already said this. Goldman Sachs is, I mean, you know, and, and all the like analytical finance people have already said that like basically the inventory is way too small for there to be any kind of uh, serious dip in um, housing costs in the Bay Area. I, I, it's not going to happen. Yeah. So we're, we're, we're like looking at this, this recession where incomes, like the negotiating power of tenants right now is such that they can kind of tell landlords like, hey, you're not going to be able to evict me for uh, you know, if they want to play hardball, say you're not going to be able to evict me for six, nine months. It's going to cost you a lot of money. You're probably not going to get the rent back at the same level. Um, you're not going to be able to rent it for a while. On the short term, that is the the picture of the leverage. But the long term, it does not look good, right? We we just did not build enough housing in the last ten years, yeah. and we're, it doesn't look like we're going to build any new market rate housing for the next two years, at the very least. Um, so it's kind of like what's something's gonna have to break here right we're gonna get socialism by not having built all that market rate housing right 
Well, I think there's there's different models, and I'd say you can criticize. I think the naive VMB model of oh, you build enough during the boom times, and that's enough. I think you know most. I think almost anyone will say it will never be enough, but it's a form of harm reduction, and we have not even done like that to any real extent. Uh, but oh. I mean, and the and the other argument would be like, oh yeah, you should do public housing. You need to acquire the land, do a lot of public housing at scale. And we did not have the money to do that in boom times. And we certainly seem like we're not going to have any ability to do that now. So it's like, well, well, okay. So here's the thing. We actually may have some money to do it because, you know, Jerry Brown, who went up against all criticism, did start the rainy day fund. And I believe it was uh, a couple of years ago. So you're not going to build I, public housing with the rain. Yeah, I know. I know. I know they're not, we all, but we all know that's not going to happen. So that's, that's irrelevant. What I'm saying though, is that like, we do have at least uh, like 13.8 billion that is going to be reserved for like a budget emergency. This is from the, like uh, uh, from the um, couple budgets back. And we're going to probably have about around maybe hopefully 3 billion, um, which we can use for discretionary purposes. And that will probably be going, I predict, to housing, assuming there's no other fiscal emergencies that aren't in the um, budgetary problems. So that's number one. We do have some money, but it's not there's at three, this point. Three billion and, and, and hold, on, hold on. Hold on. I know. I know it's nothing. Yeah. But here's the thing. Right now, and, and, and a lot of people have been talking about this, I think, in the affordable housing world. Litech housing, low income tax credit, nonprofit housing, which is how affordable housing is financed, is so like, I don't want to say inefficient because it actually has built a lot of high quality units that even uh, public housing programs in the past have not matched up to, but it is very costly, right? Some would argue it's not the most cost effective way to build housing, maybe the only opportunity we have at the moment. Is it really a good use of local funds to be financing? 100% below market rate housing for a large sum and maybe not as many units versus the acquisition model, which just like acquires naturally affordable housing, because we're going to have this small pot of housing funds. And we're going to have to determine, you know, do we either continue financing affordable housing, get maybe, you know, 40 units after millions of millions of dollars, or do we go and acquire, you know, hopefully 1 million or less um, properties that, are up for sale. So this is kind of the debate right now that I think we're gonna start having as the fiscal shortfall comes. And then point number two is that, and I'm just gonna be real honest with you guys, you know what they say about real estate, right? Like people in real estate, like <laughs> people, some people are wondering like, why are landlords all dependent on like a tenant's income for their own income? Like that's like, yeah, well, cause it's, cause you know, they're not smart and <laughs> they're not smart. And that's why they're in real estate because it's real easy. All you got to do is buy and you know, it doesn't, I don't want to say, I don't want to bash anyone, but I've, I've heard the joke that, you know, the kind, you know, C students are the types of people who go into real estate. Like it doesn't take any effort. You well, know, it's, so it's, it's a not... type of thing you get like, you know, conference centers full of investors and you're just like a bunch of people who have like dumb money. It's like you can become a landlord, you know, it's the easiest way to get rich. Yeah. It's the easiest way to get rich for someone who doesn't have any real skill and might take a big investment out. Daryl, I mean, Daryl brought up a great point is like we're looking at, uh, you know, there was actually a, a article in the L.A. Times this past week about how the the unit cost of affordable housing in California using the low income housing tax credit LIHTC has grown just leaps and bounds from astronomical $250,000 per unit to now topping out at, at $1 million per unit for some yeah. developments. And so we need to look in terms of one, like is how, like this is, this model is not efficient, right? Um, it, it might produce some nice housing for some people and that's great. The outcome in terms of the, the units that were built, I'm glad that they were built, right? But the existing program is not doing it efficiently. Um, the other thing is the value of those light tech credits are going to go down quite a bit in the next mm. couple of years because none of these companies, the, the whole light tech uh, process is built off of uh, a tax credit for banks um, and corporations' profits. And all these corporations are not going to have any taxes or any mm. profits um 
to shield from taxes in the next couple of years. So the value of the tax credit on the tax credit market is going to go down. And this is what happened in 2007 and 2008. And they essentially yeah. had to bail out and convert the tax credit program into a loan or sorry, a grant program where they just directly, they just shovel the money at the low income housing developers. And so I think the question is, is do we, if we're, if we're going to like invest, think about how we're going to invest in affordable housing going forward is do, do we want to be tied to this bank system, this bank and corporation tax credit system any longer? I mean, one of the cool things that I heard, um, East Bay for Everyone, um, the organization that Daryl and I are a part of, we had a, a town hall with Assemblymember Buffy Wicks, who represents Berkeley and Oakland, uh, this last week. And, and Assemblymember Wicks, she said, you know what, we, we might need to just start building like Works Progress Administration style public housing again, like get people working and build the housing ourselves. So I think there is an emerging um, I think there's an emerging realization that we do not need to necessarily go through this low-income housing tax credit system to build housing that's affordable to low and moderate income people. And that we could do it ourselves and it might be more efficient. And we also can control the outcomes better that we don't rely on the how much money uh, uh, Apple or, or Google is making in a particular year about how much what our yield in terms of affordable housing units is going to be. Right, right, but then we also need to be honest to like taxpayers that that means that they're going to have to pay for it, and and that's great because I, I want them to pay for it. Um, but the reality that like this is the problem with affordable housing and the labeling of it is that there's kind of an implication among a lot of voters that like they're not necessarily paying for it. That's problem number one, and then the second problem is you know this is kind of in reverse of the entire fiscal policy which most municipalities were pursuing over the last 10 years or last 20 years where they were mainly selling public housing projects or, or I should say giving them over to nonprofits, the whole, you know, privatizing public housing or nonprofitizing public housing. You had uh, cities selling um, surplus public lands. I mean, this, you know, it, it, because for most cities, these are huge fiscal negatives. Um, so, I mean, even Oakland well into like the, the 2010s was a, uh, Oh, the Oakland Housing Authority owned properties are like nonprofit developers or market rate developers. Like someone buy it from us, please, because they were in such a fiscal uh, strain for so long in these properties, they just wanted to sell. So we're also going to have to transform the fiscal politics, which I know isn't as fun for people in terms of the incentives for why city governments or, or maybe it just needs to be managed by the state government uh, controls uh, the future of public housing. Yeah, and I think it's it, it goes back to the kind of Reagan neoliberal era of light tech coming out. It's, it's this really technocratic way to get a free lunch. And the free lunch is, you know, you get a uh, tax credit, you get that, and you essentially rent the public housing for 30 years or so. And at the end, you don't even you don't even control it anymore. Uh, this is it's it it's a lot sexier up front than uh, funding, building and controlling your own public housing. Uh, but in the end, like it, it, it's more like junk food. You don't actually keep it, uh, which is not great. And I mean, I think when I, when I spoke earlier, I'm like, I think I certainly don't think cities have the capacity right now to do FIMBYism at scale. I mean that certainly if you're buying land at market rate, funding everything at our incredibly uh, you know, overpriced construction rates, uh, and just an inefficiency down the line, you'll never do it. But if cities are smart about it, acquire stuff, I think they really could do a lot of good at scale. But there has to be the political will and I think the savvy to to kind of make sure they get it at the right time. I mean, I just want to connect this most to, to national politics or, or, or congressional politics. Is You know, six months ago, um, it was like weird people like Matt Brunig um and james medlock who were complaining about the low uh, about the um earned income tax credit right yeah about how it's not really a a welfare program it's a way for policymakers to uh give money to poor people while hiding it in the taxation code rather than spending money directly on uh, cash transfers and then you know in this stimulus package we just got cash transfers to poor people right and and people are talking about we're talking about UBI, and so the Overton window on this, this idea of it's the same the tax credit just the, the you know the low income housing tax credit the the motivation behind 
hiding it in the revenue code, it's the same thing, right? It's the idea that we don't, they don't want to recognize that those are, that we're, it's a subsidy, it's a public subsidy. They'd rather hide it in the revenue code. So we are seeing, we are seeing um, kind of history move and for the first time in a while where things like doing direct cash transfers for poor people was verboten and suddenly that's changed, you know? And the fact that we have legislators um, that are talking about in California that are talking about repealing article 34, that are talking about building public housing themselves that are, uh, that are saying that we need to just directly invest in it. I think that's really encouraging. Maybe we're not there yet, but I think it's important that, that we use this opportunity to make, have a rupture with the existing kind of affordable housing system because it's clearly, it's not working. Yeah, I would second that. The center has definitely moved drastically over to New Deal politics, basically because we've had a self-induced Great Depression, right? And, you know, for all its flaws, particularly with, you know, racist prejudice in terms of its distribution, the New Deal worked. Um, and to the extent that we are in those, in those circumstances again, I mean, it, it's it's politically untenable to say, well, we can't do anything and just let the market work itself out. Um, and, you know, appropriately, Art Laffer is, is a laughing stock once again for saying just that. The presidential Medal of Honor winner, uh, very, very yeah. esteemed guy. I, I mean, I think it's, it's when, when people who are, you know, I think when you kind of condemn the underclass, the poor as being losers and people who screwed up. It's very easy to say they don't deserve anything, but I mean, a crisis does actually, if nothing else, changes that because people start knowing people who need help themselves, even if they're privileged, which is sadly what it takes a lot of times politically to have any change. So um, the ultimate enemy and the ultimate cause of all these problems are the corporate lobbyist industry in Washington. And it is the Republican party and the Democrats who contribute along with it. Um, if you look at the history of the new deal, um, we all know, at least some of us should know that many of those programs were passed with the condition that like black people wouldn't benefit. Um, that was the whole, you know, yeah, uh, the agreement. Yeah. yeah right, right. Right. So that I think though, that when we talk about social programs today, we should recognize how, the Republican Party and, and, and corporate interests and just the whole fascistic ideology um, in this entire part of the American right still exists, but has just changed the targets more or less. And so now what we're seeing is we're seeing Republicans, when we talk about um, Medicare for all, when we talk about uh, subsidies uh, to assist during the whole Corona shutdown, we're seeing Republicans' as new target is now undocumented immigrants. And so they're going to try to pull real hard to make sure that like undocumented immigrants can't get any kind of financial assistance, even though they're taxpayers. Um, and, and, and this is sort of the new modern day equivalent of what the uh, uh, Southern representatives did during the New Deal, which is try to disenfranchise black people from getting these benefits. So yeah, just be that, conscious yeah. that this whole thing's still going on. Yeah. And you saw that video with Rand Paul a few weeks ago where he's saying that undocumented immigrants are not people because they don't have social security numbers and therefore we can't give money to them because they're legal non-persons. That's fun stuff. Uh, but uh, okay, back to like kind of, we, we talked about kind of a different ways that cities can kind of control their destiny through public housing, through, you know, interventions and more, but to the bigger topic of how can we redistribute the pain? One big question is we can have, you know, uh, we can have a eviction moratorium. We can, you know, just actually look to take away equity from landlords. One other possibility is, uh, and people are talking about it, what if you just said during the crisis, you don't actually have the right as landlords to collect rent when people can't work. If you can regulate people out of work, you could in principle be able to regulate uh, the, the rents paid. Uh, the, you know, in San Jose, uh, this last Tuesday was going to go ahead with something on that exploring a rent cancelization program, uh, saying that during the shelter in place crisis, uh, people, I guess, uh, might be like you have to prove, uh, that you're affected, but you don't have to pay rent. Uh, the problem is the, the city attorney, immediately uh, said, this is a very underspecified part of case law, uh, as far as takings clause, you know, there is, I think enough of a president, people do rent control without feeling that it is a taking 
uh, it's not unconstitutional. Although people are scared, this uh, change. yeah, people, that, people are scared it's going to change. <laughs> I'm just saying, it's like, yeah, it's it's people are. There's probably going to be some challenges, but I'll say this: rank cancelization uh, plus our conservative court system. It's very hard to imagine that this regulation would not be challenged and probably go down. Which is unfortunate because I think common sense would dictate it would be a very reasonable thing to do in this context. Yeah. So, I mean, if we're talking about like total went waivers, right. Um, I think that, you know, I think realistically what's going to happen, I would love to just say, you know, wave a wand and landlords can't demand rent. We all know that that's probably not going to hold up at the Supreme court. Um, it, it could have further ramifications in that. Maybe that might lead to a good social movement. Maybe that might compel, maybe that might be a good negotiating tactic um, to get landlords to sell their properties to tenants. That would be good. Um, so I'm not against the rhetoric of it. I'm just saying that practically speaking, that, that I, I, I have doubts about the feasibility of that long-term. I think that uh, what might come up in a lot of progressive places is how to get local governments to try to basically subsidize tenants. Um, I think this is what's going to end up happening. Um, I, I, Dean Preston talked to me on Twitter about this for like two seconds, um, but th that, and that he's allegedly looking into this as well. Um, but we're looking at, because someone has to pay, as, as uh, Derek said earlier, someone has to pay, right? Um, and so again, we don't want to incentivize landlords to just sell all their properties and whatnot. I think what will end up happening is there's going to probably be some attempt to try to have local governments cover the rent for tenants um, as some kind of like waiver. Well, and Berkeley already set up a fund of like a million dollars for that is my understanding. So it's, yeah, so, you know, we shouldn't have to be lucky enough to be a tenant in Berkeley to, to have the government step up and help you pay your rent. Right. It should, although, although, although life, life and life as a Californian and life in the United States is that if you're not a tenant in like 14 cities in California, your life pretty much sucks. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of how it is. But well, let's yeah, keep this in mind is... that Prop 10 was, uh, would not have changed that at all. Yeah, it wouldn't have. I mean, Prop 10, I mean, I think that repealing Casa Hawkins would have been fine. Um, it would have been great, actually. Uh, but yeah, any kind of like policy that's predicated on like all local governments are just supposed to get their act together, like it just doesn't work. That's why Newsom tried that with uh, evictions and had to uh, do a statewide <laughs> policy because it turns out that if you don't live in Berkeley, San Francisco, or uh, Oakland, even Los Angeles apparently is not up for the task of doing it. You know, you're kind of screwed. So yeah, I think there's going to be some kind of financial wind wavering of some kind um, in very progressive cities. But I mean, to talk about kind of what this means though, we're talking about who bears the pain. This would be that uh, landlords don't get any kind of, you know, haircut and the cities will actually just put money in their pockets, which is, I mean, if it works, it works, but boy, what a, what a waste of money to kind of subsidize inflated, uh, you know, landlord incomes. You know, that's, it's just a bummer if that's, if that's the only politically feasible thing we can do. Yeah. Maybe, maybe make landlords, I don't know, maybe compel landlords to like, Hey, if we pay off all your tenants rent, um, you should probably consider giving us your property in like 10 or 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Something, something like that. I don't know. Yeah, I think there should there should be some consequence of saying that, you know, we are not going to bail you out for free. We want yeah. something to benefit our community. Yeah, or so commit to, or commit to or commit to keeping your rents low. How about that? Like, yeah. okay, yeah. well, yeah, yeah put you, you want to get a bail bailout? Have a have a uh, independent because because uh, for those who don't know, not all uh, rent stabilized properties. And I'm not talking about under rent control. I mean under like BMR, LIHTC. Um, those are usually deed restricted, but. When people build an ADU and they say they're going to price it at like uh, whatever, uh, like 100% of um, area median income, I mean, those are technically moderate income units. They're not deed restricted, but I mean, we can do variations of this where we can force uh, or, or encourage in exchange for financial assistance that landlords also rent out their properties at yeah. lower rates. I mean, that could be an idea. I think that's a, I think that's a really good idea, Daryl. Um, I think that is, you do not want to give no strings attached money to these landlords who have uh, as we said, they've earned quite a bit in earned uh, quite a bit in the upside of they've accrued our, it. I'm not sure they yeah. earned. Um, and they they don't need another handout. Um, but you do need to make sure we need to negotiate with them, right? If we cannot, if we don't have the budgets to cancel the rent, we need to think about how we can, uh, you know, essentially be almost like a Section Eight voucher uh, of paying the the, the cost delta between the, what the tenant can play, pay and what they cannot. Um, 
and but you know you have to landlord you're going to have to to promise not to raise your rents more than um you know 1.5% 2% or whatever for the next uh 10 years pick yeah. a number right i think that is that is an approaching something where we could get a win we could create security for tenants we can make sure that uh since you know Dale brings up we don't necessarily want private equity buying up all of our housing stock uh right now um and so we could make sure that we preserve those small landlords to the extent we want to do that and then also uh, get something in return some public value in terms of stabilized rents yeah i mean i think i think it's worth uh you know worth saying that uh it's unfortunate that i think we we're bugged a lot by the fact that it's so hard to build housing because you know cities have so many levers to say you can't do this you can't do this can't do this but when it comes to actually having uh, landlords run the joint and actually run these buildings and have all sorts of public, uh, you know, just, just operations. There's, it's so hard to regulate, you know, it's very unfortunate that we only had the levers up front. We can't do a whole lot. Uh, uh, just, just one quick question I have for, uh, you know, people, should I even like, I, I'm kind of very, I think it's going to be extremely bad here. Cause I am partly convinced that unlike 2008, uh, I think we're going to get the actual agglomeration in the Bay Area in particular, I think is going to evaporate. I think every tech company is working from home uh, for the last you know month. It's going to be for many months going ahead. And I think that in the end, a lot of companies say, hey, you know what? You don't have to be in the Bay Area anymore. Uh, and when that happens, we're going to see a cratering land value. And we're going to see uh, even more of just a fiscal disaster. Uh, is that is that is that being too galaxy brained, or do you think there's a chance that's going to happen? Uh, I mean, I mean, so everyone likes talking about where the tech everyone likes talking about where the tech economy is going, but I'm actually pretty convinced that the tech economy will probably, for the most part, not be fine, but it's going to definitely come out much better than. Um, almost every other industry <laughs> at this point. Oh, I mean, no. The service industry is dead, right? Okay, okay. But, but there's, there's, there's two questions here, Daryl. One is, will the tech industry be fine? And two, will the tech industry necessarily be agglomerated in the Bay Area the way it is now? Or would people okay. be able to... So, so, yeah, I know what you're saying. Um, uh, will the tech industry basically keep... Because the whole reason why the high wages in the tech industry exist in the Bay Area is because the Bay Area is an attractive place to live and there's a housing shortage, right? And as soon as people start telecommuting, I mean, what's the, what's the incentive? Um, I agree that I think there will be collapses in the tech industry, um, mainly for these companies that haven't like produced any serious profit. <laughs> okay. So that's a lot of startups that are just constantly pumped with investor funds, just all this capital. And when they start now that they're going to, they're going to probably start pulling that in and these companies aren't going to have anything to show for it. I think a lot of them will probably get bought up. These smaller companies will probably get bought up by bigger tech companies like Google um, and Salesforce. Uh, that's number one. So there, there will be a shock in that sphere of the tech economy Two, I'm just not convinced that Bay area land values are ever going to drop that fast or that hard. People think that the only reason why people want to live in the Bay Area is because of the tech industry. The Bay Area has been a, 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 an expensive place to live since at least the 70s. Um, it's, it's always just going to be an attractive place to live because it has a lot of amenities, it has a lot of educational institutions, uh, San Francisco is a very beautiful city, all these things, and it's always going to be a big um, economic capital. Will tech companies probably start recruiting if this stays on for a very long time, people who don't are not based out of the Bay Area? Probably, yeah. But... I still think that, and that might lead them to drop incomes, or they'll probably drop wages somewhat. So maybe a software engineering uh, job starting probably won't be, I don't know, $140,000 or whatever it normally is. Might get dropped down to maybe even $90,000 a year. Who knows? But I, uh, I would push back. My question about that would be like, I mean, people have been predicting, you know, the end of offices ever since the 90s and, you know, remote work. Well, no but now this is. Like, yeah, and now, like, and now I think we are seeing some movement in that direction, but I've always, you know, Zoom is not a new technology, right? Like, my, like, why, why would tech, like, tech companies have always been able to have 100%, I mean, not always, but, like, for a while now, they've been able to have 100% remote teams. My, my question would be, like, why haven't, why didn't they do it before if it was so convenient? Because people, because people, it, it was a conceptual idea, right? Like, let me be honest. Like, I rarely use Zoom. I use Zoom at work, like, a couple of times when I was doing some, like, uh, software work with um, a, a company locally called um, Urban Footprint. But 
for the most part, like I, I didn't really use Zoo. I think that when you force entire tech companies to go on a status run or like a trial run with Zoom, and for the most part, like productivity is relatively high or still up there, I don't think that there will be. I'm I, basically what I'm saying is I, I made a tweet about this. Like, I think if tech companies start seeing that they can get still pretty high productivity in terms of like code they're producing um, through telecommuting and they don't have to pay costs in terms of maintaining an office, having service workers and all the other like auxiliary aspects that go along with running a tech company, the sort of in-person maintenance costs. I am sort of convinced that we're going to see a lot more remote work. Yeah, and uh, just to jump in here, I mean, I think you talk about why have tech companies have done this so far. This is, I think, explicitly something they do on a very cutesy level is you have a handful of very powerful CEOs and they have made the decision to say, oh, over here at, you know, Facebook, Google, Apple, whatever, we believe that people need to be elbow to elbow to really collaborate. And that's been their kind of cutesy thing that they have been preferring, even though it's been incredibly expensive. Uh, and I think, you know, maybe they will, maybe they won't. But I think uh, there's certainly the argument that there's a lot, uh, there's a lot more friction to keep it going. I, I would push back. I think Daryl is saying like the kind of incomes are determined based upon how much you need to spend on housing. I think it's the opposite. You get income based upon what you get from your employer, and then your you know housing steals it from you. Uh, so I don't, I don't think that if housing drops, you'll get paid less. Uh, I think that the causation's the other way, but you know, that's just, that's just me. I, I could, I could just easily imagine that disaster could have because the, the entire, you know, NIMBY sphere is like, Oh, there's always a money faucet and it's called the tech economy. And I could think, I could say that could very easily change. I think, I think you're probably right, but I'm, I'm a little curious if I take maybe a company's like posting or an offering for an entry level SWE job in San Francisco and compare it to like one in Dayton, Ohio. I'm, I'm curious to see what the wage offerings would be. I, I, I want to think they're not the same, but I, I for one, I would love to hear the, uh, what ideas, you know, Malthusian anti-growthers like Zelda Bronstein and Stu Flashman and other folks at Livable California who, you know, are fortunate enough to be very wealthy landowner, landowners. Like what is their idea for, um, you know, bailing out municipal services and, and, you know, the public sector without this, you know, money faucet, as you say, of the growing tech industry, which, you know, they always say, oh, like growth is bad. Like we don't need more tech growth, but they never offered a pony up a single dime in higher taxes on, on of their own, you know, equity profits to, to help the poor people of this region. I mean, straight up, I, I, I didn't want to insult NIMBYs and stuff, but like straight up, well, I always do. Very, I, I, I know, but one of the very annoying things about NIMBYs, at least for this last decade, um, is that their like total lack of fiscal responsibility is going to hurt us hard. Oh, like, yeah. like every, every, like they had, they, like, <laughs> I just like, they, they seem to like not understand that like the cities don't have infinite money and killing um, budget revenue for no reason. is not helpful. Uh, all these things like, like we're about to do this in Berkeley right now. Like it's just people make this so di difficult on cities for no reason at all. And then when the pension crisis comes and employees are like, Hey, where's the city going to start paying me? Uh, and then we are going to have to start making budget sacrifices and tons of unfunded liabilities. Like people are just not comprehending this at all, but it, NIMBYs help feel it. Uh, that's, that's their fault. Definitely. Yeah, yeah the pensions angle is interesting. That's always something uh, Kim My Cutler brings up. She uh, yeah. used to be a you know a tech journalist and now is a it works for a VC fund. And you know she always points out you know number one pension um, <laughs> pension funds rely a lot on venture capital for you know their high growth high returns, and then cities rely on tech growth to be able to meet their pension obligations. And you know when people say oh like we don't need more jobs like oh I can't why can't tech just grow somewhere else you know that okay fine maybe you don't want google here what is your idea for paying retired public employees there is no there you never have any idea like what how this is all tied together and how if you just cut one part of the of this web that's tied together like what you're going to do when that falls apart so that's that's these what are, i want to yeah these are the same people who start crying when the austerity cuts come in like this is yeah. like they don't they don't see how two and two are connected but yeah no, I mean, I think these people ostensibly, they believe in a steady state economy. They want something which is sustainable and, and beautiful and small, but they are not serious about it. They can't achieve it. They have no ideas. But 
Uh, we'll, we'll certainly much more to talk about that in the future when people talk about pensions. But uh, we, we do need to wrap up here. Any, any, any final thoughts going around? Like, what do you think the main takeaway to focus? What should people be watching for, especially as far as housing goes, uh, to make sure that, you know, or what are the kind of biggest open questions we have? You know, just, just go around the board. I mean, the thing that's the most interesting to me is, I think they said like 69% of renters, only 69% of renters paid their rent uh, for April. Yeah. My question is going to be, is that going up or down for May? I think that's- Oh, it's going down. It has to be going down. Like, here's the thing, like, everyone's like, oh, we're going to get a two-month exemption. This is going to be going on for a year, and it's going to get more and more desperate every month. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Diego, any, any final thoughts? Um, yeah, I would say, you know, if you're paying close to market rate rents now, um, and you know, you have the ability to pay, um, you know, take a look at comparable rents in the area now and try to negotiate a new lease with lower rent. Um, it's certainly something I would be doing if, you know, I hadn't had rent control locked in in 2011 and I'm paying well below market rents already. But you know, if you're, if you're paying close to what the market could bear now, that's going to be changing very soon. And, you know, you don't, you don't want to be stuck paying more than you have to. So, um, you know, bully your landlord. Yeah. And I'll say that personally speaking, I mean, as someone who I, I feel like I pay too much in rent because I have access to like Stanford university, I have access to nice libraries. These are all closed. So I shouldn't be paying this much rent. I should be, I should be, uh, you know, negotiating it down. Uh, and and Daryl, any final thoughts? I mean, even with all that, you know, Palo Alto rent's still too high. Oh, they suck. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'd I'd be charging like $5 for all those amenities. Okay. Anyways, um, I, I don't have any, I think that what's important right now is to think the ways that cities can try to help tenants. And I think what's realistically going to have to happen is right now cities are going to have to start looking because the budget shortfalls are going to already come in. San Francisco, I think is reporting a budget shortfall. Um, And we're going to see a lot of cities probably go um, into bankruptcy or near bankruptcy pretty soon. So I think it's very important right now to get those funds allocated, ready in a pot and a fund of some kind, ready to be used to either acquire properties or pay off tenants' uh, rent or whatever needs to get done. But that, that should definitely be the fiscal priority right now. And that's kind of what I'm most concerned about at this point. Yeah, it's going to, I mean, it's going to get weird. I mean, I, I think around here, we're seeing some of the better ones. I'm like following Cincinnati and they're like, they have uh, like immediately 17 million shortfall and they're cutting a ton of jobs. It's like, you know, at least people here don't have like austerity mindset, but it's, it's going to get real nuts in a lot of places. But we'll see. So, uh, but again, thanks. Uh, thanks all, all for being here. It's uh, been a lot of fun. Yeah. Thanks. Cheers. Cool. We've been talking to Daryl Owens, Derek Sachorn and Diego Aguilar all about COVID early aftermath we're going to see in the future you can find this episode and all previous episodes of the show at the website seethecat.org this is a presentation of KZSU Stanford